when we find that true disenchantment has arisen towards all that the world has to offer, it means that equanimity has arisen. Because no longer do we find anything revolting then as a next step, nor do we find anything specifically attractive. It all just is, as it is. And that step is the significant one which brings us from the disenchantment to dispassion. Dispassion in Pali is viraga. Passion is raga. And from it comes the English rage. Not particularly rage as anger, but rage as raging, being where the action is. So viraga is the end of that raging inside. And it is the opposite, which is equanimity. And so what we see around us, what we confront, what happens around, inside, it just is. And it no longer has the aspect of being obnoxious, nor does it have the aspect of being specifically enticing. So the mind is not in any way either pulled towards or pulled away from it. And it becomes what is so often called spacious. <laughs> that is the first moment it does become that. Namely, it has room in it, space in it, energy in it to do the next step. Because that, what we are busy with in ordinary, in our ordinary lives, no longer has any sting to it. Having seen quite clearly that all that exists has aspects of dukkha because it has in the first place the materiality, the body which uh, decays and it has the mind which is constantly trying to know, understand, be in charge of, get involved with, which is called the impinging and signifying qualities. The impinging is that which touches upon us and signifying that which gives the signals. Having seen all that as being constantly a source of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and being equanimous towards all around us, the mind now takes an interest 
in finding something which will be totally fulfilling and no longer an interest in finding that fulfillment in the world. It's quite clear to such a mind, having gone through all the stages of insight and having come to that even-mindedness towards all these things in the world, that it has to be something which does not depend upon conditions. Body depends upon the condition of craving, of wanting to be here. That's how it got born and that's how it remains until it breaks up into bits and pieces again. And the condition of mind is contacting. Otherwise, it doesn't arise. So it wants to find something which doesn't have the quality of this unsatisfactoriness, doesn't want to have, wants to find something which has to be based on unconditioned, on the unconditioned, because it has seen, the mind has seen, that everything that has conditions and causes will never be satisfying. Naturally, the mind doesn't know what the unconditioned is like. But it is already strong and clear enough to be able to realize that it has to turn away from that what it is usually concerned with. And usually it is concerned with something that arises, which is called an occurrence. There's always something that arises, and it has been clearly seen by now that all that which is occurring has the three characteristics. Has the characteristic of impermanence, has the characteristic of non-satisfactoriness, and of corelessness, substancelessness. Having seen that the body and the mind are depending upon conditions and have no reality in themselves, has already shown that the ego idea is an illusion, but it still hasn't seen something else, the mind. So it is trying to turn away from all that's occurring to something which will give total satisfaction. The mind then can understand, if it is already strong and clear enough, and by that time it should be, that <coughs> there has to be a still point, a point where nothing occurs. And when it has seen that this is necessary to find that, because that which is still does not have a condition because it isn't arising nor ceasing. And this is what the mind is searching for. It realizes also that there is to be made a step forward. And this step has an analogy which is described in the Visuddhimagga, like this. And it's a description 
which will, I think, um, make it quite clear. It's a good uh, analogy. It is as if one wants to get from one bank of the river to the other side. And the momentum of practice is that which makes it possible to have the energy to do that. So, one ties the rope of materiality to the branch of selfhood and takes that rope with the momentum of practice to get such a swing. And as one swings across, <laughs> across the river on that rope, one can see the other side, one tends and inclines toward the other bank and can let go of the rope which is all that is materiality and the branch of selfhood and falls down on the other bank. Which means one has at that moment been able to let go of hanging on to anything that is in existence, particularly, of course, this body, and has been able to let go of the notion that there is somebody inside this body who is me. And having been able to let go completely, one can fall down on that other side, on the other bank. Naturally, when one falls down there, one staggers. One is not secure and safe yet. One has to find one's footing. This is an analogy for the path moment. Maga. Maga means path. That's all it means. But the word maga is used for the moment of entering the path where what we call occurs the change of lineage. The change of lineage means that up to then one has been a putujana, which is a worldling. And at that moment, one comes into the lineage of the Aryans, which are the noble ones, the lineage of those who gained enlightenment according to the Buddha's teaching. And this is the first instance when this happens, which is called stream entry, Sotapanna. Now this is a path moment which of course, does not occur like this. This is the analogy for it. But it is a moment of jhanic absorption, but just one single moment. That's all it is. A single moment of jhanic absorption where there is no occurrence. That means nothing arises and therefore nothing ceases in that moment. And although the past moment is only one moment and does not have the actual recognition in it, the next moment, which is called the liberation, Vimuti, is the fruit moment. And that is two moments. 
And that fruit moment gives the recognition of what has happened. In that fruit moment, one has the fruit of that which has happened. Now that is the recognition, the understood experience. And it is a fact that there are people in the world today who have had such past moments without practice and without instruction and had no idea what happened to them. And 20 or even many more years later, find out what happened to them. Because if they don't know what happened to them, it has, although it changes their attitude to the world, it does not have the great benefit that it should have. This particular instance is an experience of non-occurrence. And non-occurrence means having experienced the unconditioned. The unconditioned, which is a word which is bantered about a lot and hardly understood, can be understood in this way. It is a return to the ground of being, to the matrix of existence, where within that unconditioned state, all conditions can arise through craving. But since for a person who has done that step, the craving has abated, the unconditioned remains one of the aspects of that person's consciousness. The actual benefit arises in the next two moments, which are called pala, P-H-A-L-A, which is fruit. So this is always called in Pali maga Pala. The pH is just pronounced P. Magapala is path and fruit. And that fruit moment, in that moment, is a realization of what one has experienced. A moment in which the self-notion was obliterated. It was obliterated to the point where, in the fruit moment, an enormous sense of relief is experienced, as if one has let go of carrying around an enormous burden. That relief is also combined with the understanding, because of having practiced, of what has occurred. What has occurred, namely the consciousness having turned away from all that we know, whether it is 
beautiful, wholesome, acceptable, or the opposite makes no difference because all that we know has within it the notion I know. No matter how wonderful it is that one knows. And what has occurred is a moment of no I know, but an experience where within that experience is nothing but the matrix, the ground of being. Having come back from that, comes an interesting aspect. It is either immediate, it can take place later. In many cases, it takes place later. It's called reviewing knowledge. It takes place later because this particular um, experience has great impact. And that impact has to be digested first. So one sort of, as if one has had um, a very long and strenuous journey, one has to sit down and rest from that first. This has been a long and strenuous journey through many lifetimes, maybe thousands of them. A long and strenuous journey with lots of dukkha. And here, at that moment, with the impetus of practice and the ability to completely let go of all that connects us to the conditioned state, has come the first ability to realize finality. It is only the first step. And in this tradition, there are four steps, three until the final step is made. But this very first one is so significant because of its enormous impact on the psyche. The impact is one where what we call the first three fetters are removed. Traditionally, we talk about ten fetters which bind us to the conditioned state. And the first three are lost at this time. And the most significant one is that we will never again believe ourselves to be an entity, an identity, a personality. Now, the stress of the sentence is on the word believe because the stream entra is not yet able to have that as a constant inner feeling and constantly be in that state. But he will never again, he or she, will never again believe him or herself to be a person with personal identity, with solidity, compactness, and with something of a core inside. The wrong view of self is lost. 
But this is for the stream enterer a viewpoint, not a steady experience. This is so to say the kindergarten of enlightenment. It's a first step in. The second fetter which is lost is the belief in rites and rituals. That doesn't mean that one cannot perform them. One can if one wishes. But the belief that they will bring enlightenment is lost because one has seen that something entirely different has brought this state about. The constant letting go. The constant letting go of the attraction and the repulsion which gets back to reacting to feelings but it goes much further in this case. This constant attraction and repulsion has given way to equanimity and to seeing the uselessness of trying to find satisfaction here and has then resulted in the ability to completely let go of the personality illusion and of the personal expectance of finding that peace, that harmony for that one person. That has all been let go of. No rite, no ritual can do that for one. And the third factor which is lost is skeptical doubt. These two are lost for the duration. Duration meaning until this body breaks up. Skeptical doubt and belief in rites and rituals is lost for the duration. The wrong view of self is also lost, but it has not given way yet to the ability to be with that constantly. Skeptical doubt is lost because one has proven the Buddha's words for oneself. There's nothing to doubt. One knows this is so. This is so that consciousness carries within either samsara or nibbana. And that it's possible for a human being to have a consciousness which carries liberation within. There's no possibility of having any skeptical doubt. Traditionally it is said that such a person has maximum seven more lives as a human being as until becoming fully enlightened. However, all this can take place in the same lifetime. Traditionally it is said such a person can never be born again below a human being. The next seven lifetimes are taking place in the human realm. Can never take any other teacher except the Buddha because the Buddha has given the instruction for this resultant. And can never break again any of the five precepts. 
the the resultants are due to the cause of losing the first three fetters. But as you can see, greed and hate haven't been touched yet. But wrong view of self has been touched. And wrong view of self is a root cause for greed and hate. So greed and hate are diminished. They're not quite the same burden they used to be. It's not quite as heavy anymore, but they aren't by any means eliminated. It takes as far as a non-returner to eliminate them. So you can see from that description alone that a Puttajana worldling is beset. All Puttajanas, all worldlings are beset by hate and greed. And Although they are unpleasant, there's no use blaming oneself or others for them. This is the natural way human beings are. To become a stream enterer is transcending the natural humanness and to go into the super mundane level. It's a transcendent level. We're transcending the human level. Once the Buddha was sitting uh, under a tree and a wanderer came by and uh, admired him, admired his very shining uh, appearance and asked him, are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. And he said, are you a man? And the Buddha said, no. And uh, so the wanderer said, well, what are you then? If you're neither God nor man, he said, I'm the Buddha, enlightened. It's neither God nor man. Naturally, as we all know, the Buddha started out as a man, just as a human being, as we are. But when we reach the level of the noble ones, it has a transcendental quality. It has the quality of no longer having to deal with the human level on the same level that we have dealt with it until then. Although the stream enterer, as I said, still has seven fetters left, of which two are greed and hate. And yet he has already gained his foothold in the Aryan um, path has gained his foothold on reaching a total liberation. This passion, not um, being attracted or repulsed, means that we can live in the world quite easily. It is no longer the difficulty that we used to have when we were dividing the spiritual quality from the non-spiritual quality. And because we no longer divide, we are able to make this enormous step. Because there's no division in the mind. 
that step means one thing only. It means having let go of all craving. At that moment, some of that craving returns for the Supreme Mantra. But having let go of all craving at that moment means that we no longer have the wish to be here. We also do not have the wish to be otherwise. There is nothing that is attracting or repulsing, nothing that keeps us here or otherwise. This letting go of craving means primarily letting go of the notion of selfhood. And that is what anatta, non-self, that is what corelessness, substancelessness and void means. Letting go of the notion of selfhood. It doesn't mean not to have thoughts. It doesn't mean not to be able to function in the world. It doesn't mean that a stream enterer looks, acts, talks, or does anything particularly different from what he used to do before. It just means that the viewpoint from which he regards it all has changed completely. It's not just an on and off affair of remembering impermanence or of remembering any bit of the teaching, but the viewpoint has changed totally. This is a realm which needs to be transcended and a realm in which all beings live with the delusion which makes them unhappy. And that viewpoint brings a great deal of compassion. And that was the reason why the Buddha taught for 45 years. His compassion for the beings who are roaming around in samsara without any help to get out. The fruit moment can be resurrected at any time that the person who has experienced it wishes. It means that this fruit moment then becomes part of that person's experience because one resurrects it and as it is being resurrected it provides the ultimate peacefulness. In that ultimate peacefulness, there is nobody there. That ultimate peacefulness goes beyond existence. There's no craving to be. There's also no craving not to be. There is nobody there that wants to be. There's nobody there that doesn't want to be. It goes back into the ground of being. The fruit moment can be resurrected. The past moment 
only occurs once for each of the different stages of enlightenment. So it needs continual practice to be able to go to the next step. The next step is called the once returner. And the once returner, as the word says, comes back once more in order to finish off what he didn't finish this time. The once returner doesn't lose any of the fetters. He just gets hate and greed somewhat abated. It gets less, but it still isn't eliminated. It is a second path experience. Having had the first one, naturally it's much easier to go to the second one. Having once been concentrated, for instance, and entering first jhana, there's no problem to do that again. And the same applies here. Having been able to take this enormous jump across the river for the first time, it is not quite as difficult to do it a second time. The mind needs to have that particular um, determination and it has it quite naturally because a stream winner, a stream enterer, still experiences dukkha. He certainly not got out of Dukkha yet. And knowing that there is something that makes it possible to be out of Dukkha gives him, of course, enormous impetus to go further. Having experienced it once, to have been out of Dukkha for that particular moment and any other moment that he wishes to return to it, he can have that very strong determination to go further. So a stream enterer would never stop practicing and would know that it is necessary to turn the mind or consciousness away from worldly affairs. Because worldly affairs, although there is no attraction to them, they are still a disturbance. So it is often the case that someone who has been able to get to that path moment wants to practice in solitude or at least in a place which is removed from worldly affairs. The worldly affairs are so much a distraction and give, have so much um, uh, strength in them that it is difficult to be able to turn oneself entirely away. It's only the Arahant who has completed the task to whom worldly affairs have absolutely no sting anymore. That mind can never be shaken again, but the stream enterer certainly can still be shaken.
So such a person tries to turn himself away from these from too many worldly affairs and just be concerned with the absolute necessities and tries to re-arouse the past moment through the concentration in the meditation and through the turning away from the consciousness, the turning the consciousness away from that which has occurrences in it because he realizes that that's what he did the first time. So the consciousness needs the still point and as one does it more often, one becomes practiced in it. The consciousness has actually a still point where there's no movement that this is possible to, uh, to experience. And with that still point in the consciousness, to let go again, to go beyond existence. This letting go and going beyond existence is hard to put into a terminology which is easily understandable because one isn't going anywhere. One's right where one always has been. But it is the aspect of letting go of this appearance that we are making here in this world, our appearance here as being something which is desirable, valuable, and should be continued. If you can think of that for a moment, you will realize that this goes against an ordinary person's grain. <laughs> Breaks nothing. <laughs> and therefore, it needs all that um, practice which has gone on before to come to that point. Because it must also not have any revulsion in it. Because the revulsion for that what goes on here is just the other side of the same coin of attraction. So it's a complete letting go and understanding or realizing that that which is un unconditioned is the only situation, the only experience which can have in it no dukkha whatsoever. So when the second step is taken, the person becomes a once-returner, and it is up to the person, him or herself, to make that judgment what they have done. They can, of course, explain it to a teacher who has a knowledge, and a, not only a knowledge, an experience of this, but it is still up to the person to make that realization. Having done this and wanting to resurrect the fruit moment, then the person resurrects the fruit moment by being determined to have the fruit moment of the second path. And having that determination and gaining that fruit moment of the second path gives the um, confirmation that that was what one actually experienced. Is that clear? Shall I say that again?
No, I thought so. <laughs> Having experienced the second path moment, of course there's also a fruit moment for the second path. Again, there's that same two moments after the past moment in which the person realizes what has happened. And that realization again brings about um, relief and release, ease and um, a feeling of having shed more of a burden. And these fruit moments can be resurrected at will. And a person who has had second path will then have determination to resurrect second path fruit moment. And re-establishing that gives the confirmation that that is what has happened. Is that any better? Okay. <laughs> I did say, say that it happened. At the time of the path moment, it is there is only possible to have the path moment when the total letting go has happened. However, the notion of self is only totally eliminated for the Arahant. It is consecutively lessened and lessened. The viewpoint has totally changed. The viewpoint is one which is entirely opposite to the ordinary viewpoint. The ordinary viewpoint is, this is me, and I want to become enlightened. Such a viewpoint is no longer possible. However, the total experience of that is not constantly with the person of the first and second path, because it is not the totality of the experience yet. The um, viewpoint is that everything is exactly as it has always been, and it's all right the way it is. But within all this which has always been, there is nothing that has any real significance. That is called the signless liberation, which happens to the person who investigates impermanence as the overriding subject. The wishless liberation happens for the person who uses dukkha as the overriding subject because it is seen at that time, of course, that dukkha can no longer arise when there are no wishes. And the void liberation arises for the one who takes anatta as the main subject. So the viewpoint has changed for both of these uh, path uh, people, stream enterer and once uh, returner, but there are still seven fetters to be lost. And the next path is called the non-returner. 
And the non-returner is a person who will not come back to the human realm, but will finish the work in one of the Brahma realms. The non-returner loses hate and greed. He has now lost five fetters, and there are five remaining. So the step from non-returner to Arahant is a very, very big one to the total realization. However, these three preliminary steps, particularly to be a non-returner, is I can't think of anything else to say except an enormous achievement, although that again sounds as if somebody is achieving something. <laughs> it is an <laughs> trying to think of a different word. It's an enormous letting go. That's better. It is having seen reality for what it really is and not being anymore fooled by any of these outer appearances. We are constantly fooled by the outer appearances. Everybody looks as if they were a person. Everybody looks as if they were either a man or a woman. Everybody looks like somebody or something, and everybody feels like somebody or something, and everybody wants to be somebody or something. And out there everything looks interesting, sometimes bleak and sometimes uh, uh, wonderful. And all these appearances have fooled us for so many lifetimes. And what they have done to us is they have constantly resurrected the Dukkha, they have never given non-fulfillment. One mustn't think of dukkha as only pain, grief, and lamentation, although it's that too, of course. But it is unsatisfactory and non-fulfillment, and we all know that. And we have known it for ever so long. But when we can practice, and when we can understand how to practice, then we have an enormous chance to get out. But it isn't me that's getting out. It's just getting out. It's just getting out that one of the delusions have disappeared. It's one of those little bubbles that have arisen out of the matrix of existence, no longer thinks of itself as a separate bubble, but just gets back down into this matrix of existence without any resistance and no longer wants to be a separate bubble. So when the non-returner has made the third step, again, the proof of the experience lies in the fact that the resurrection of the fruit moment comes upon the determination that the third path fruit moment should be resurrected. And a non-returner can do that. The resurrection of the fruit moment gives such a person the opportunity and uh, the ability to rest to, to rest completely within, a, um, within the unconditioned 
within a fold of where nothing is occurring. So with having the opportunity to do this at will, such a person is of course um, very much shielded from having dukkha. Although there are still five fetters remaining. And the one fetter which is significant at this time, it's called ignorance, which means nothing else except still not being totally rid of self, is described as the aroma that clings to a flower. So clings the notion of self to the non-returner. It's a very fine aroma. It's still there. And the non-returner knows it. Because one of the things that happen after the fruit moment, and usually quite a while after, but this is individually different, I suppose, is reviewing. Reviewing what has happened. We do that under all circumstances. If we've had some interesting experience, we review it later, what happened. Or if we've had some uh, very uh, sig uh, significant experience, we review it. So here's an uh, impact experience. And uh, so the reviewing comes. And the reviewing reviews the past moment, the fruit moment, the defilements which are no longer arising, and the defilements which are still arising, and the experience of Nibbana. So such a person, this is done sometime after path and fruit, because otherwise one doesn't know what defilements are arising. One hasn't had a chance yet to let them arise. Such a person knows very well what defilements are still there, and also knows which defilements no longer arise. They are at that time, absolutely and utterly cut off. There's no longer any need to suppress them, to recognize them and substitute. None of this is necessary. They just don't arise. Now, in the first two instances, hate and greed, which are the root cause of all our defilements, uh, are only lessened. In the first instance, uh, only a little bit and in the second instant quite a lot. One could say maybe halved, something like that. In a, in a once-returner, one, no, one could say more than that. In a once-returner, hate, hate would arise as irritation, but not as hate. And greed would arise as an aspect of um, liking but not grabbing for it. The mind likes but does not go for it. That is in, an, in the aspect of the once returner. In the aspect of the stream enterer, hate would still arise as anger, but it would be very well aware of it, and greed would still arise as grabbing for it. And yet, such a person would be so aware of it 
because the viewpoint has changed so much that the mindfulness would help him very much to diminish this further to get to the next step. The non-returner has no hate or greed. The uh, attractions of the world leave him cold and the uh, unpleasant situations which even the Buddha was uh, confronted with, many of them, uh, have absolutely no repercussion. But there are five fetters still there. And the one I said already is ignorance, where there's notion of self still clings like the aroma. And another one is restlessness. Because the self has not totally been eliminated, there's still that restlessness which every worldling knows of going somewhere else, doing something else, getting something else. That restlessness in a very subtle manner is still there. And then something interesting is there, namely a desire to be reborn either in the Deva or in the Brahma realms, which are either the fine material realms or the non-material realms. There's a desire because there's still this little bit of clinging to self. There's this idea, well, at least I could have a very nice next existence in one of those wonderful realms where there's absolutely no dukkha. And the fifth one is called mano, which is conceit. But it doesn't mean that the person is conceited. It means that there is a conceiving still of a selfhood. There's still a conceiving. There are still concepts there. There's a conceptualizing, a conceiving of, which is all due to the fact that there is a selfhood notion still left. These are very subtle differences, but the person who has experienced that knows those fetters in him or herself has done the reviewing knowledge and the reviewing and has got the knowledge from that reviewing that these fetters are there. With that, um, with, these, with the ignorance and the conceit which are actually both one and the same thing, um, and the restlessness, there is a definite understanding that there's still some me in there. Although the experience has now happened three times, there has been a three times experience of Nibbana. And the experience of Nibbana cuts out all notion of selfhood at the time. It still re-arises. It's interesting to know that because it can show everyone how strong that notion of selfhood is embedded in an ordinary person, that even after having had three experiences of Nibbana, the uh, notion is still not totally eliminated. The last five fetters are only lost with Arahantship. The Arahant has, therefore, the fourth opportunity for gaining path and fruit. The path moment for each of those steps is only once, so 
So if there have been four path moments, the person is then an arahant. That person does no more reviewing because that person knows that defilements have been eliminated. That there's absolutely nothing arising within which has any kind of dislike, revulsion, repulsion, and there has absolutely nothing within which has any kind of grasping or wanting to have. Nothing of the sort is arising. And that is only possible because such a person has already eliminated the desire for rebirth in those other realms. These five fetters are necessary to other work that a non-returner does. He works on those five fetters. And having brought them down to the barest minimum, is able to have the last path moment so that they are totally eliminated. We can look at these path moments, although they are all extremely similar, but they become more and more, uh, they become deeper and further reaching, as if one takes an exam at university on one particular subject and one has a major and takes exams and in the first year the examines are by no means as far-reaching as they are in the second year and in the third year and the fourth year. They're still on the same subject, they're still on the same major, but they become far more far-reaching. And as these past moments become deeper and more far-reaching, they have this enormously um, deep impact on the psyche, on the consciousness. The consciousness cannot return to ordinary consciousness for the Arahant. That doesn't mean Arahant doesn't eat, sleep, feel, talk, have conversations about the weather, conversations about whatever happens, it doesn't mean that an arahant doesn't have uh, the ability to be totally ordinary. On the contrary, the arahant would be totally ordinary. The only thing that is completely lost is the notion in, this, or in the arahant that there's anybody there doing it. These are nothing but five khandas operating until the khanda of the body is destroyed through death and therefore the khanda of mind can return to matrix of existence. The ever-recurring refrain after anyone had uh, mentioned to the Buddha arahantship was destroyed is birth, the holy life is lived, what had to be done has been done. There's nothing more to come. And that might be a good ending. <laughs> There's nothing more to come. Right. You can ask some questions if you like. <coughs>
we, we begin this path or this spiritual path doing it more or less for ourselves. Um, but at some stage, it seems like this is lost or the, um, the ego wanting to do this stops. Well, no, not exactly. It, it becomes less a factor and what becomes a greater factor is the mind itself. Um, is at this stage is it somewhat like uh, automatic pilot? Um, I'm thinking automatic pilot because the so often you said uh, the mind itself seeks greater peace and it, it had the sense that the mind is just pushing itself further into the Mm -hmm. um, my question is the ego is still there wanting to do this also and the ego has started the process initially um, but the mind uh, I guess well uh, what I'm thinking is uh, this when I had this interview with you ago and I told you that I had entered this prashana and it scared me, it was very terrifying. And um, <clears throat> it was from the standpoint that I had entered it perfect, I had gone into it as you know, my ego or whatever I sat in, but um, there was this sense of dissolution which, or dissolving which was stopping right away. Um, I would trust one is, it's hard for me to trust that aspect of mind which just wants to go on its own through these stages, um, even though I'm doing it for mind. <laughs> um, can you say something about that? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, uh, as long as we're not Arahant, as I have just explained, there is an ego. And it is fine, it is fine for that ego to have this desire. Um, the desire is in the mind and the ego is nothing but the notion that this is my mind, right? So actually it's all happening in the mind. That we have this consciousness that this is my mind is our ego process. So the mind and the person who thinks they own the mind would like to have peace. And that's a perfectly valid uh, determination, a perfectly valid goal. And to get peace, the mind knows very well that it's got to stop thinking. It knows that very well, even though it can't do it yet, but it knows it. So as, it, as one practices the meditation, the mind has that uh, direction, natural progression for it to enter into what we call the meditative absorptions so that it can stop thinking for a while and get some peace. There is no reason to mistrust that. If it was something unnatural, then it wouldn't uh, be a peaceful, wholesome 
uh, situation. It would be something which is not peaceful and unwholesome. It would give um, rise to excitement and anxiety, but it doesn't. So it is something that is quite uh, trustworthy. The other hand, when you realize dissolution, as I talked about this morning, and there is no counteracting of the uh, absorbed mind, which is happy and at ease, naturally terror arises. Because when the ego is there and says, well, I don't want to be dissolved, I want to be. In fact, I want to be happy, that's what I'm doing all this work for. Right? So there's a great uh, dichotomy of thinking there. I'm sitting here, I want to get happy, I'm having all these knee pains, and now what's happening? I'm going to pieces. I don't like this at all. Right? So there's terror with that, naturally. So there has to be, an, uh, there are two ways of dealing with that. The first way is that the mind has already been able to get into the absorption, have happiness and peace, and terror never arrives. On that path of absorption, terror doesn't arise. It's impossible. The mind just doesn't have that kind of quality. It can get the insight, but it gets it in a, in a gentler manner. It can also get it in a slower manner, but it gets it in any case gentler. And the other way to deal with the terror is to know that the terror is quite valid. It's quite valid that the ego is being terrorized, but that that is exactly the point of <coughs> departure from staying with that ego and seeing that all this what has been formed, all formations, everything existing, is not satisfying, is dangerous. So one has to have sufficient knowledge of the Buddha's uh, instructions to get past the terror or be able to do the jhanas. Now, you, the fear of the jhanas is, I think, what you voiced, that you're fearful of doing that, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is also the ego, because the ego says, quite rightly, you know, when you're absorbed, I don't have anything to put a foot on. Where am I? I want to be somewhere. I'm the one that wants to be happy. I want, I'm the one that wants to have some peace. And there you get absorbed. And where am I? I'm, I'm not there at that time. So the ego doesn't really allow this very nicely. So one has to get past that. In other words, saying, all right, this is fine. Now just be quiet a moment and I'll do it anyway. Talking to one's own ego. So you have to, this is, I guess, the crux of the matter. You, you have to get past that, but um, do you choose the ego's uh, reaction of being terrorized as a subject of contemplation? If it arises. Right. You're being, right, the terror. If the terror arises because of t dissolution, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, naturally, you can't help but. I mean, it's so strong, you can't help but contemplate on it. And the contemplation, if you have enough knowledge already that this is a, a valid step on insight, and that the next step is seeing the danger in all that is manifest, it gets rid of the terror. Okay?
I'm afraid this is intellectual, but this is a contemplation that I really hate. And, and it's, it first started to happen the very first time I read Abhidharma. <clears throat> and it's this. If, um, <laughs> if, uh, um, the original matrix, if we're just bubbles in the original matrix of ground, whatever that is, whatever we are, <laughs> uh, then you go through this whole process of getting, getting, of practicing, which is is arches, and then you go back, and it's like I, I keep thinking, oh how horrible, you know, it's like it almost makes me, well, it's pretty horrible to think about, like the, the constant rising of, of, um, of, 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 of duality, yeah. So, I think. Well, is it? And every time I read things like this, it gets back to me and it makes me feel sick. It's just like, why is, why is um, in that case, um, samsara is so significant and nirvana is so insignificant from, from the viewpoint that, that we're looking at that and that way? From the worldly viewpoint, yeah. you're saying. Why is this everything seems so important and nirvana doesn't seem so important? Or, uh, no, not so much that, no, no. it's just that it's so much struggle to get out of, of um, nirvana, I mean, no, out, out of, of samsara, that, um... Are you wondering whether it's worth the work? Well, it's <laughs> just like if it's going to arise again, you know, and another, you know, then you'll have to spend, maybe it won't be me, and who knows what it'll be, but it'll be <laughs> someone else who experiences a whole world of suffering. So that makes me not want to think about samsara at all, and, and you know, just, I just don't want to. <laughs> now, uh, wait a second. Uh, <laughs> that's, a bit, that's a bit confusing. Um, I know it's confusing, it's, it's, but... Did I understand you right? Uh, if, if the person that you are now, right, if that person uh, becomes an arahant, right, Right. then there's nobody else that's ever going to experience samsara again that is going to have your uh, mind consciousness and karma. Yeah, but it, se it seems that, that whatever is my mind consciousness is, is significant only because it, it, it's suffering. It, it has this whole personality range and it's all like some sort of manifestation of suffering. Well, are you saying, is it really worth all the work to get to Nibbana? Or no, I, see, I can see that it's worth the work because the suffering is enormous. In right. fact, that we all have it. Yes. But it doesn't matter. Like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't, and, and from this contemplation, it doesn't matter who it is, but it's just the fact that it's... Um, suffering. That it's suffering, that makes well, it worth it's just like, it's almost like the, if, the, if there's always bubbles coming out of the ground of, of existence, um, why, why, why does that have to happen? Oh, your, oh, your question goes back to first causes. That's one of the four things the Buddha didn't answer. I'm sorry, I was they are the to say that. imponderables. <laughs> They're the four imponderables. The uh, questions which tend not to edification. That's right. Yes, there are four, <laughs> okay, four imponderables, and uh, these four are the range of a Buddha, the range of a person in jhana, the uh, beginning of the universe or the beginning of human humanity or the beginning of universe, either one, 
and the intricacies of karma. These are the four imponderables. They do not, uh, are not conducive to practice and they would only confuse us more than we are already, the Buddha said. So, first cause, there's no first cause, it's all going around in circles. becomes enlightened in the lifetime, at least they have their remaining years to enjoy. <laughs> the Buddha became enlightened at age 35, so at least he was able to enjoy the enlightenment until age 80. But there's also a significant statement about that, which I think uh, is uh, also worthwhile knowing about that a person who has no ego concept is aware of that when they put their mind on it. Just like a person, it is said in uh, the simile that's given, just like a person whose hands and feet are cut off are aware of that when they put their mind on it. And that's why I said an arahant also acts like an ordinary person. But any time he puts his mind on the fact whether there's anybody there acting, he realizes there's nobody there acting. And nobody there thinking. It's just thinking. It's just talking. It's just acting. That's all. So they have to put their mind on it to realize it. Whereas when the stream enterer, the once returner, and even the non-returner, although the non-returner of him, it's already very close to our hand, uh, when they put their mind on that, it isn't always there, that feeling of non-self. They know it, but the inner feeling is not always there. So there's a big difference in that. So what else have we got? So the settlest enemy or the resistance obstacle in this continuous state is the ego. Yes. Public enemy number one. There is no other enemy. We all carry the enemy within. But we also carry the uh, whole, you might call, salvation within. That ego, this, uh, that ego wants to know today, that ego brought me here. 
You can't distinguish the water from the sponge. It's impossible. It's saturated. So everything that an ordinary worldling does, thinks, uh, speaks, is saturated with the ego delusion. So you can't distinguish between the two. It's impossible. But the cause for um, starting on a spiritual path is in most cases dukkha. Not always, but in most cases. Some people have a natural inclination uh, towards it without even having had such tremendous dukkha that they just have to do something. There's a natural inclination in their minds to go on the, along those paths, that pathway, which is, uh, one should think, it's a, con it's a concept uh, due to past lives uh, having done the same thing. But uh, most people are pushed by dukkha. And that's why the Buddha said, this realm, the human realm, is the best one to attain enlightenment. We have enough dukkha to do something about the dukkha. And we have just enough sukha not to become totally depressed, unless we allow ourselves to be that way. <laughs>
Well, the whole of the teaching is based upon his original words. Um, there have been other enlightened teachers on the path. However, using always the Buddha's uh, basic instructions, that's so. But it is said in the canon that a Buddha arises um, again and again. <coughs> On our tradition, there are seven Buddhas mentioned. I believe that in the Tibetan tradition, they're mentioning 24. But we have the names of seven. And the Buddha gave the names. They're mentioned by him. But that's all he did. Didn't tell anything about it. And are these people who were stream winners and once-returners and non-returners in previous lives? It doesn't say. I wouldn't know. I, I can't say something that I don't know. But I'm just trying to think. Um, no, it's not like that. Not at all. I can answer that. It's not like that. A Buddha is a person, in our traditions explained like this, a Buddha is an Arahant, but he also differs from an Arahant because he is the one that finds the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path again by himself without a teacher. So he enters into this pathway, um, so to say, um, cold. And that's, therefore he's called the Buddha because he brings the same teaching back. Four Noble Truths and Noble Eightfold Path have been uh, brought as a teaching by each Buddha, but they get lost. And in our commentaries, there's an interesting story uh, you may know this already, but I'll tell you anyway. It's in the commentaries. In fact, it's in the sub-commentaries. <laughs> it says like this, that there's a prophecy that after the Buddha's Parinibbana, his teaching will last for 5,000 years until the words Anicca Dukkha Nata are not heard again until the next Buddha arises, which may be eons away, kalpas as it's called, but eons away. We can't say because it is a, these are numerical units which we can't even express. However, within those 5,000 years, right in the middle, there will be 100 years in which the Dhamma takes an enormous upswing and we are at the moment in the 38th year of those hundred years. And we're seeing an enormous upswing on the Dhamma in the West, in the East, the opposite. So that is a supposed prophecy out of the sub-commentaries, not by the Buddha. He didn't say that. The next Buddha which arises is supposed to be called Maitre Buddha. And it doesn't say exactly when he arises. It takes a long time. And the thing is that if it is true that these are the hundred years where the Dhamma has taken an upswing, and I would say it does, it's true, because particularly with regard to the fact that it's the first time in the history of mankind 
that the Tibetan teachers have come out of Tibet and are bringing Buddhism to the countries where they are moving to, uh, even to India, mm -hmm. whereas in India Buddhism is uh, very, very minor. So if it is true, it means that this is a time where we have an enormous opportunity to gain enlightenment and not to waste our lives doing anything else. And uh, because here we are here, we have the Dhamma available to us, whereas if we come back again another time, it may not be available again because after 5,000 years it disappears and we may not come back when this next Buddha arises. So we may be um, uh, floating around samsara for untold uh, times without any such opportunity that we're having now, which should arouse some vega urgency. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that um, in what way would a want to train the case? Would there be some choice of place or circumstances or further? Uh, yes, it is an interesting aspect. Uh, of course, we don't have this uh, a tradition of that um, the person gives an indication of where they come back to. However, it is explained like this that an ordinary worldling has so many opportunities to get into a womb of ordinary worldling parents, whereas a stream enterer or a once returner, of course, needs to have the conducive environment for his advanced stage state of uh, spirituality. So there are so very few places for rebirth. So it takes much, much longer, it is said. An ordinary worldling can come back immediately, practically, uh, within days, weeks. Whereas an um, uh, advanced person like that, it may take quite a while because it has to be found the uh, necessary circumstances. Um, and and stream mantra comes back as a human being. That is mentioned. Um, a once returner, usually also. And would such a person come back with the notion of gaining full enlightenment with some intention to teach? Not necessarily. Um, the teaching quality is a, a, a gift which not every enlightened person has. There are those which are called Pacheka Buddhas, which are actually also Buddhas having found their enlightenment through, through their own uh, efforts, but are unable to teach. They don't have that gift. And there are many Arahants in the time of the Buddha who never taught. Uh, there were supposedly 1,500 Arahants, but we have to take these numbers a little carefully because the numbers 500, 1,500 means many, many, many. So um, uh, not, not necessarily the intention to teach, but um, we have to look also upon this development as a natural progression. It is like a fruit on a tree. Now, if you have an apple tree and you stand there and you say to the apple tree, dear apple tree, I would like to eat apples, would you kindly have some ripe apples? It's impossible. You have to wait its time. 
But if you have a ripe apple on the tree and you say to the ripe apple, would you kindly stay on the tree, don't fall down, also that's also impossible. So as the person matures and ripens, the uh, progression of um, the enlightenment stages take place to arahant, which means no more, the end of birth and death. You talked about uh, the arriving of compassion Yes, certainly. Uh, it's got to be. <laughs> Otherwise, it isn't possible. Uh, he hasn't got the gift. He has to get his compassion going in some other way. He hasn't got the gift to, for, of expression. That's the way it's explained. The gift of expression is, is lacking. Not everybody has a gift of expression. People teach in other ways. Yes. That's right. That would have been one of the, those uh, examples, things to do. The gift of expression, the teaching, when we talk about teaching, we talk about the gift of expression. The Buddha said it was a rarity, the gift of expression. He said there are six rarities, and that's one of them. And the arriving of a Buddha. Are you saying rarities or rarities? Rarity. Rarity. It's a, it's a, uh, even the arising of a Buddha is one, and uh, the uh, teaching, the Dhamma is one, and I don't remember all the others. Thank you. Anything else for enlightenment purposes? <laughs> <laughs> or otherwise. There's one other thing which uh, also is uh, a feature of the, um, a natural feature of the past moment or, well the past moment not after the past moment. It is uh, called the arriving of the Four Noble Truths that arise simultaneously in the mind. Now you see, for the Buddha, they arose like for the first time. Nobody had told him the Four Noble Truths. Each Buddha finds them themselves. But for the person who has the, um, uh, followed the Buddha's path, then the Four Noble Truths arise simultaneously. And it's likened to when the sun goes up, it dispels the darkness, it gives warmth, uh, it um, and uh, the sun goes up, gives light, gives warmth, and uh, it dispels the cold. So it has all these four things happen all at once. First, that it goes up, that it uh, gives light, one can see the objects, that the darkness is gone, and that the cold is gone. And the same happens with the Four Noble Truths. They also arise in the mind spontaneously, all sort of together, because the third noble truth is the noble truth of Nibbana, and when that arises, the other three arise with it. So the person who has gained Nibbana is a person who has become the Noble Eightfold Path, as no longer having to think about it, but has become it.
that's another feature of this particular uh, experience.